so we pray that closing verse one more time. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. In Jesus' name. Have you ever heard a really dynamic speaker? And I'm not just talking about me, because you've heard me plenty of times. I'm talking about a really dynamic speaker, maybe presenting on some topic that interests you, but a especially moving topic. Something in which that speaker presented to you a powerful message that changed the way you think. You know that word dynamic and that word powerful both come from the same Greek root. A dynamic speaker with a powerful message comes from the root word in the Greek Bible, dunamis. A word that's used in our text, a word that's used throughout the New Testament in a couple of different ways, but all in this basic sense of something that moves you, that motivates you, that gives you the working ability to make something happen. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, he uses this word dunamis five times. He says in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he's praying for the Christians there, that God would give them the Spirit, and that the Spirit would reveal who God is. Their eyes would be opened, and they would know something they never knew before. The hope they have, the riches they have, and thirdly, the power they have. So Paul is praying that the Spirit would open their eyes to the power they have, the dunamis, which gives us the English word dynamite or dynamic, the dynamic working in us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, that he worked in Christ when he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one that's coming. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of the church. You have here Paul using this word power to describe what God did when he raised Jesus from the dead. When God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand, it was the power of God working to make that happen. The ability of God to undo what we think is unchangeable, death. And then he says that is the power that's working in you. The same power that physically made this dead man come back to life and brought him to the highest throne in heaven is working in your heart. That's a pretty powerful message from a pretty dynamic speaker. So this power is referenced in the New Testament in a number of ways. 
For one thing, it's describing how God distributes into this creation both the spirits who are at work in the world and man who is at work in the world. So you have the powers of the spirits at work in this world and the power of humankind at work in this world and how they should all be working in harmony with God for the governing of this creation. The power to rule, the power to be in charge, the power to do things and make things happen. But secondly, that power was taken, not for God's purposes, but for other purposes. So both the spirits and humankind partnered in taking God's power, the privilege of him saying, you're in charge now, and used it for different purposes, to further their own ends, their own selfishness. And they just weren't content using the power to live under God's plan. So in the Old Testament, it describes how this power was made known and manifested in idolatry. Because idolatry is taking exactly what we're talking about, the spirits that God made and humankind, and bringing them together for selfish, sinful purposes. Idolatry was meant to craft something as a spiritual power in a certain place and time, so that the powers which are on earth in kings and princes and authorities, in homes and fathers, would be used together with the evil powers at work behind the scenes to accomplish things God doesn't want. Which is why in Paul's writings, he refers to God, Jesus, being above all power, dominion, rule, and authority, not only in the earthly realm that we see, presidents and dictators, authorities and officers, but also in the spiritual realm. Which brings us to Simon. Simon Magus. He was called Simon Magus because the word Magus comes from the word magic. Simon was another of these magis, like the magis that came from the east to visit Jesus, who were actually sorcerers and astrologers and worked in all kinds of the occult practices. He's also one of these magi. And he's known throughout Samaria. They practice various forms of idol worship, witchcraft, ways that they could access the powers of heaven to influence the powers of earth, to get people to do what they wanted them to do. Philip arrives in Samaria, and he knows the history of this place. This place is filled with all sorts of a mixture of different beliefs. Samaria dates back to the time of Solomon. In 1 Kings 11, when we hear that Solomon had accumulated so many wives that basically his kingdom was just filled with shrines to all these different gods in order to please all his 700 wives. Something that was directly and specifically against what God said in Deuteronomy that kings were supposed to do, namely 
God had said ahead of time, kings should only have one wife. But with all these wives and trying to please them all, he started building altars to Ashtoreth, who required women to give up their chastity in order to please him. Molech, who required you to sacrifice your babies in fire. Chemosh, who wanted, who they built temple shrines right on the Mount of Olives, just outside of the temple in Jerusalem. And God said that because of what Solomon did, it ended up tearing the kingdom apart like a cloth. Right down the seams into 12 pieces. Two of the pieces were given to Rehoboam to be king in Judah. And then the other 10 pieces were given to Jeroboam to be king in the north. So then this hostility continued on between these tribes. They all wanted to assert their power, their control, their authority. And they just kept adopting these practices of inviting the spiritual powers that God had meant to use for good into all kinds of evil and idolatry. One of the sons of Jeroboam was Omri, who built a capital city in Samaria and also built a shrine there to Baal, and his son, famously Ahab, who built an altar to Baal. And it says that he did more to provoke the Lord than all the kings before him. Because of this, God gave the people over to the Assyrians, who were a power to the north, and they came in, and they took all of those northern tribes away into captivity and brought back in foreign people. Babylonians and Egyptians and slaves from other parts and settled them in the land so that by the time of Jesus this place we know as Samaria was a big mixture of all sorts of different cultures and beliefs and religious practices which is where Simon comes in because he's taken advantage of this system this confusion so that the people from least to greatest, it says, are following him, whatever he says. And the reason is that he can perform powers. He's making use of these occult practices in order to demonstrate miracles, signs, and wonders. What will happen when this world of Simon collides with the world of Philip? What will happen when the powers that have been working Samaria for so long collide with the power of Jesus Christ? This is what the word dunamis means. It means that there is a struggle going on for control. Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be in charge of your life and your heart? Who does it belong to? What is the power that's working in you? What are the powers from outside that are coming in to try to influence you, to invite you into other places of power, control? When Philip arrives, he reveals that God is at work, both 
in the material world and in the spiritual world. Now, we tend as Americans, and we think we live in this modern time where we separate the two very much. So some separate it all out into materialism, that all there is in this world is matter. Materialists deny the spiritual, and they pledge all their allegiance to the things they call scientific, rational, observable in this world. Only they don't realize that there's nothing modern about that belief at all. The Greeks had the same philosophy, they just call it Epicureanism. And the Epicureans had a saying, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because in other words, if there's no powers beyond just what we see in our material world, if it's all rather random, if it's happening just by chance, if there's nothing making sense of it all, then why should we care about anything? Why not do just what's best for you, what's most enjoyable, eat, drink, be merry? You're going to die. What they don't realize is that there are powers behind all of that thinking. They just don't name them. On the other hand, you have those who separate it out just into spiritualism. Where all there is in this world that we should really be concerned about is the spiritual and forget all the material stuff, the physical stuff, the earthly stuff. The goal is to escape that all into a spiritual mode. But that's nothing new either because back to the time of Jesus, Plato taught the same thing. Plato taught that we should separate these things out. Material is bad because it's corrupted and it leads us to bad things. So all we should worry about is the intellect, the mind, truth, and ascending upward. Now when Philip arrives and he starts preaching about Jesus, you see that he's bringing the two things together. We're seeing that there is a power at work that raised a physical body from the dead, that together with the physical resurrection of Jesus is a spiritual power that is now at work in the world. And so he's doing physical signs and miracles because he's saying that the Resurrection is bringing God back into this creation to do things that God intended it to always do from the beginning of time. Healing the sick, lifting up the paralyzed, giving sight to the blind, doing signs and wonders to show God is in this material world. And we can't just separate them out into one or the other. They go together. And that's where the powers are colliding. The powers that are colliding for control. <laughs> Philip arrives and he preaches this message of Jesus risen from the dead. And the people who are very well aware of these powers in Samaria, they've seen it with their own eyes, including the evil that it can do. And they're convinced. They're moving toward Philip. And Simon wants a piece of it, too. By the end, we don't really hear whether Simon was ever truly converted, do we? In fact, based on his response at the end where he says, not to pray that God would forgive him for what he's done, but to pray that something bad wouldn't happen to him, 
And then Peter's silent actually suggests he wasn't. Tradition has it that Simon actually started a Christian cult in Samaria. In the second century, one of the Christians from that area who lived in Samaria refers to Simon as Simon Magus, Simon the magician, that he continued on, but he just adopted his practices in idolatry and brought it into a Christian mode of thinking and practicing religion. There's even a legend that links Simon to the beginning of the Druid religion, which took place up in Ireland. Now, whether or not all that is true, what we do see is there's a problem with Simon's heart. Something's not right. Have you ever seen that in a person? Where they're after something, they want something, they're going after something that even is godly on the outside, but they're going after it all the wrong way. There's something motivating them toward the right end or the justification for everything they've done, but it's not coming from a pure heart. And when you see it in Simon is when he not just gets excited about Philip, but then Peter comes along. Okay, why do Peter and John come to the city in the first place? Why wasn't Philip's message enough? Why couldn't they just have left them to start their own Christian church and go on about their business now that they had received the name of Christ they've been baptized? Because the Christian faith isn't just about the beginning. It's about the long run. It's not just about the excitement of hearing a new message or hearing a dynamic speaker or hearing a powerful statement. It's about the long-term impact of God in a certain place and time that requires ongoing instruction and oversight, which is why Peter and John come. They want to pray. They want to reaffirm what Philip was saying, but now begin to instruct them in the ways of God. There's a sharp distinction there between the power of miracles and the power of the word. Paul writes in Romans that it is the gospel which is the power unto salvation. Is the gospel a miracle or a word? Well, it's really both. It's based on a miracle of what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection and all he did throughout his life, but then it's also coming to us through a word, a promise, a powerful dynamic statement. So what makes this last, this movement of Christianity, is not the miracles. The miracles are just showing the transition of God changing things in certain places that are completely outside of the realm of explanation, including Jesus rising from the dead, making that transition and starting a new movement in a new direction. But what's going to carry that on are not the signs and wonders. A sign is a sign because it points you to something else. It points you to Jesus. It points you to this witness that the apostles were given of who is in charge now. 
Simon wanted to be part of this. He wanted to be part of this new power that was in charge, but not for the sake of submitting to Jesus with all his heart, but for the sake of having some kind of access to a greater control. Look at how they swayed all these people in one visit. It's what all who want control do, those who are enslaved to the devil's lies, they want power over other people to escape from their own sickness, their own shame. And we see this all around us in our American culture in terms of prestige and popularity and fame, money and image and stuff, control and authority and politics. We see it in CEOs and celebrities and senior pastors. But Peter knows this can never be bought. It can never be possessed. It cannot be earned. And it can't even be controlled by us. Instead, he says, it is a gift. So when Simon offers money to say, will you give me this power too, this authority, so I can be part of this movement and be in charge, just like he already was, Peter says, no, you'll have no inheritance, you'll have no part in it, because in your heart, there's bitterness. And the way he describes this bitterness, verse 23, he says, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What it's describing with the word gall is poison. His heart's been poisoned. It's describing a poisonous plant. The same word that's referenced in Deuteronomy 29 when God says, Beware, lest when you come into this new land, what I'm doing, you allow the poison to remain in your heart, the bitterness. You have to get free of this. The Holy Spirit is a gift which only God can give. And it cannot be given when we are in the clutches of bitterness and lies. The truth must set us free. This is the power of the gospel. When Peter and John arrive, they come to pray. They come to lay hands on, and they come to direct everyone to Jesus. That the issue of discipleship is to have the heart belong to God. That he would free us from this power that influences itself over us when we're lost in sin and bitterness, when the devil has fooled us into lies and traps. At the end, Simon prays not for freedom and forgiveness, but he prays that nothing bad would happen. Peter tells him to repent, which means to turn away from the wickedness and pray to the Lord for his grace. The power of God is the gospel. It is the truth that the resurrection of Jesus has set us free from any powers over us and within us so that Jesus and his spirit would sit on his throne in our hearts. 
It's above every principality and power. It can't be achieved. It can't be grasped by your accomplishments. Instead, it's a power that this world just doesn't understand because it's there in the struggle. It's there in the suffering. It's there in the sadness. It's there when we're angry. It's there when we're afflicted. It's there when we're feeling animosity. Paul says the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the only power that can give life to your soul. To free you from that prison. And we just don't want to be there any longer, do we? The forgiveness of God poured out freely to you says, you're no longer at odds with me. You no longer need to try to control all this stuff going on. You no longer need to carry the guilt and the bitterness. For I have redeemed you. Philip was sent to get their attention, but Peter was sent to establish their hearts. So let's go home today with the thoughts of Paul on our hearts, of what's working in us. And at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians, he has another prayer similar to his first prayer, and we'll close with that prayer. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.